0: A funny
1: starting place, actually, for the conversation. I don't know if, if you'll remember this, but we met at ERLC conference in 2016. You spoke on the main stage. I remember a few things about this. You spoke and your talk was laid out with the acronym RIFLE. Yes, uh,
2: I remember this, yeah.
1: <laughs> I remember the the shudder that went through the audience because the, the topic was... Um, kind of where the conservative movement had gone wrong. Uh-huh. And when the FN rifle stood for Fox News, you could hear an audible sigh of <laughs> despair in the room. <laughs> but then I was on a panel with you shortly after your talk and I remember walking up on the stage and uh, I looked over and you had a, like a moleskin style journal in your lap with the House sigil for House Stark on your, yes. on the front. And I just remember thinking, you know, in, in the context of the 2016 election and of everything you'd said about the conservative movement, it was apropos that, you know, we could sit there and say, yeah, winter is coming. And um,
2: winter has come. And winter has come.
0: There's a pine sitting on a hollow limb. He seems to have the hole him and everything he sings from the branch that he's sitting on it seems to hustle leaves and the colours all around. Now first he sings and then he goes and what it means is hard to know
1: From Christianity Today you're listening to Cultivated conversations about faith and work. I'm Mike Cosper, and on today's episode, I'm talking with the writer, David French. We talk about his life, his work as a lawyer fighting for religious liberty, his time in Iraq, and how he almost ran for president. We also talk about the work that motivates him now. There's no holding back on this one,
0: so stay with us. (laughs)
2: I was born in uh, Opelika, Alabama, but we uh, did not live in Auburn area for long. Uh, I ended up growing up in um, a little town in Kentucky. Now it's not as little as it used to be, uh, but called Georgetown just outside of Lexington. So I grew up an Auburn football fan and a Kentucky basketball fan, which is a pretty good winning combination. Um, Went to college at Lipscomb University in Nashville. I grew up in the Church of Christ, the Acapella Churches of Christ. Hmm. And uh, then got into Harvard Law School by a miracle <laughs> of hmm. some
1: sort. Was law something that you were always interested? In? Like, were you
2: always like, I want to be a lawyer when I grow up? Or <laughs> Oh, I had no intention of being a lawyer at any point in my life. My goal was to be a fighter pilot. Um, <laughs> so I, you know, I'm a kid of the 80s. And right. right at the height of my high school life, I go see the movie Top Gun. And I thought, that's going to be me.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately for David, when he got to college, he found out that his eyes weren't great. The Cold War
2: was ending, and that dream began to fade. So almost on a whim, he took the LSAT. A good piece of advice I got early on in life was that when you don't really know what you want to do, take an option-expanding choice. And so if you've got mm-hmm. a, you're graduating with an undergraduate political science degree, probably the most option-expanding choice you can make after that is law school. So I took the LSAT, um, did well on it, and thought, "Hey, let's shoot for the moon. Let's see, <laughs> let's see if I can get into Harvard." And and so that this was not some sort of pro, uh, plan. God in His providence mm-hmm. had a plan. I was uh, aimlessly wandering around in my career,
1: <laughs> as David described it to me. He'd been a Christian from as early as he can remember. He grew up in the Church of Christ, a very conservative and at times sectarian denomination. Where instruments couldn't accompany singing, and where in some of the congregations, women couldn't even wear pants.
2: This was the church. It was the church of Christ. And so it was very much Arminian to a very extreme degree. So you could lose your salvation. You could be baptized, and Mm -hmm. if you're driving away from the baptism... And say someone cuts you off in traffic and you utter an extreme of expletives. Well, you need to be going forward the next Sunday. Now, again, a lot of people who might be listening to this who are Church of Christ now, this will be unrecognizable to you. And, you know, I grew up being taught, for example, that um, Baptists, Catholics, Presbyterians, Methodists, they were all heretics and and were uh, doomed. And so mm. that was actually one of my f- big first confrontations of my young life was a, huge battle with my Sunday school teacher in like sixth grade over this very thing. and was well,
1: so interesting to go from a, an environment that is so sectarian, you know, as a kid, to find yourself, you know, fast forward 15 years and you're deeply invested in the idea of religious liberty and there's an interesting thread of not rebellion, but just, you know, that sixth grade kid saying, yeah, growing into somebody who wants to embrace a, a vision for a pluralistic
2: society there's you know if you grow up in the south i mean people can exaggerate definitely exaggerate the religiosity of the south there's sort of a cultural christianity but but you do grow up in the south where at least there's no stigma attached to christianity and then when you go to a christian college and then we went to i went to law school at a time when political correctness sort of a highly intolerant strain of political correctness was if anything more vociferous than it is now, this shocks a lot of people who think, well, oh my goodness, you know, cancel culture and is it's like it's never been. Look, if if Twitter existed at Harvard Law School in the early 90s, it, if Twitter existed in the early 90s, Harvard Law School would have trended many times because it was in a very toxic, angry environment. And it was a place where you really learn what you believe. Um, I remember when we started our our pro-life club, one of the first things that we did was we wrote a letter to the student body that said Harvard has a policy where your, your health services fee pays for elective abortions. But if you have a conscientious objection to it, you can write the university and you can get a refund of that percentage of your health fee that traditionally is covered abortion services. And that was a very small dollar amount. But it was important symbolically. And so I, I wrote a letter with my two friends to the student body. And I'll never forget, um, you know, and talking about this policy and asking them if they wanted a refund that they could reach me at. And I gave my box number and all, you know, all the ways you could reach me. And I remember going to my box after I distributed the, that letter and just seeing it jammed with paper and thinking, you know, this is before I became the the, the cynic that I am today. But I remember thinking <laughs> when I saw that paper, oh, wow, I just tapped into the latent pro-life movement at Harvard Law School. (laughs) And instead, you know, I think the first piece of paper opened up says, why don't you go die, you effing fascist?
1: (laughs) In spite of the hostility and upheaval, David found rich community amongst the Christians in the law school and got involved in campus ministry, including the launch of an event that became the Veritas Forum, a ministry that still serves Ivy League colleges and universities today. After law school, he moved back to Georgetown, Kentucky, And it wasn't long until he found himself involved in the legal struggle for religious liberty.
2: We have such a recency bias right now. We think, you know, that challenges to religious liberty are brand new, and they are not. In fact, they, in many ways, they were sometimes more brazen and aggressive 20, 25 years ago. And the the law of religious liberty was far less developed. But, uh, so I'll give you a good example. Um, I, after I graduated from law school and and early in my marriage, my wife and I belonged to a rural Pentecostal church in Georgetown, Kentucky. I was working for a big firm in Lexington and attending uh, this uh, rural Pentecostal church with my parents, who had also left the Church of Christ. And um, we had a very vibrant youth ministry, very, very vibrant. It, it was in a, a state of revival to the point where the youth services would, in some days, some Sundays, outdraw the main service. And, you know, it's a Pentecostal church. It's kind of, you know, we had a uh, a worship band and we had one neighbor in this rural community um, and he, his house was maybe about 200 yards away from the church and he could faintly hear some of the music uh, and he was very disturbed by that. And so he went to the zoning board of the county to get, uh, to have us ordered to completely, totally soundproof the building or cease worship,
0: hmm.
2: which was virtually impossible um to, to, soundproof a building where you cannot hear drums outside of it at all and so what in essence this turned into was how much authority did a zoning board have over the worship of a church and i'll never forget i i was the only attorney in the i was the only attorney in the congregation so they kind of chose me to represent them and here i am this young guy from harvard law in rural kentucky I'm gonna come in and the Lord has chosen me to save the day. And I'll never forget going into this um, zoning board, making my impassioned constitutional argument that ended up with this this statement, you cannot define how we worship. To which this older woman who was one of the leaders of the board shot back immediately, we can and we will. And, And they issued an order that effectively shut down youth worship. So we filed a federal lawsuit. This was my first religious liberty lawsuit in, I believe it was 1995. And what was interesting about it, because it was a lawsuit by a church responding to a noise complaint, it kind of made some news, you know, it hit the wire services and everything. And to make a long story short, we ended up winning that case. And um, uh, the judge not only ruled in our favor, he struck down the zoning ordinance that the, that the zoning board used to shut us down. And once you win one case back then, all of a sudden, lots of people start to call you. So I started to get lots and lots of calls, mainly from small churches that were facing uh, problems, even in the South, from zoning boards and commissions and things like that. And, and then um, when I went to teach at Cornell Law School, I continued to do my religious liberty work and then was asked to represent Tufts Christian Fellowship when they were thrown off campus. In a midnight meeting by a student judiciary panel, oh, wow. on the on the basis that the Tufts Christian Fellowship's teachings on biblical sexual morality were a danger to the campus, mm. and that ended up with um, a hearing in, for, in front of that same judiciary panel uh, several months later, where uh, we had to go through and and uh, a a crowd of extremely hostile protesters who had. Darkened all the windows, turned out all the lights in the hearing in the building where the hearing room was. The hearing room was locked, and I kind of had to sit there. Uh, I had four students with me from the Tufts Christian Fellowship, and I had to kind of protect them while all of these protesters are trying to physically intimidate us. And again, this is 2000, you know, so people keep saying, oh, every, all of this stuff that we see is new. It's not new. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that was my first introduction to campus, religious freedom advocacy. And so those two cases were kind of the foundation for everything that followed. So interesting, that phrase. I mean,
1: you're talking about how things aren't new. The idea that these beliefs are dangerous to a campus. I mean, that's so much of what you hear now in the battle over free speech on campuses is what's a danger? What, yeah. you know, the idea that the presence of people with, with religious beliefs other than your own um, presents a danger or presents hope or even presents harm it seems to be fairly prevalent, but you know, here it is in a situation 20 years ago as well. Yeah,
2: here's what has changed to a degree. So none of that is new. In fact, it was in the 1980s and 1990s when colleges began to pass speech codes, intentionally passing very expansive rules and policies that prohibited protect, constitutionally protected speech. And a lot of the justification for these things, for these speech codes, was grounded in language that we hear today. That in essence, what you have to do is you have to protect uh, individuals from speech that is deemed harmful. And when these speech codes were passed, and they rocketed through campuses to such an extent that you know, uh, when when we launched a a fire speech code. Um, uh, what we called our spotlight project at FIRE in the early 2000s to evaluate the speech policies of, you know, hundreds of campuses. What we found was well over 70 percent of campuses had a speech code. So this is something that just rocketed through campuses and and then they would enforce them. They would they would clamp down on people. And I remember one case that I had involving a a public university in, in Pennsylvania called Shippensburg University. I mean, some of the stuff would just be absurd, like And in the case, there was action taken against a student who had, and this was post 9-11, a poster on his door of B-52s bombing, and and they had a picture of Osama bin Laden in the crosshairs. Now, that happened to be the actual foreign and military policy of the United States of America in (laughs) pictorial form, but he was ordered to remove that on the grounds that it would be offensive to Muslim students. Now, if I'm a Muslim student, I'd be offended that the university would think I'd be offended by an attack on Osama bin Laden. I mean, doesn't that kind of stereotype Muslims as allied with bin Laden? That's, that's, not tr- that's not true. But anyway, that's what the university did. And, and we challenged that speech code. We filed a lawsuit against that speech code. And I could go through case after case after case after case from that era, from the early 2000s forward, with crazy policies. One of my favorites was at, I believe, Penn State University, and it was acts of intolerance will not be tolerated. <laughs> uh, now, think about that for five seconds. But Pretty Orwellian. Yeah. And so, um, you know, we filed waves of cases across the country, and every single speech code that has ever been evaluated on the merits has been struck down by courts, now, this was far from certain when we started because the courts, uh, the, the, univer- the universities mounted a, a, an argument that in a session, in essence, they had a very special educational mission and that educational mission required the cultivation of a certain kind of environment. And we didn't know when we launched this speech code litigation project how that would play. Mm-hmm. And courts, uh, Obama appointees, Carter appointees, Clinton appointees, Reagan appointees, Bush appointees, all struck this stuff down. But mm-hmm. what has changed is there is more from the grassroots up demand for censorship from students. There is more what you would call sort of like peer pressure to censor. There's more cultural pressure to censor. And so what ends up happening is that a lot of Americans are under impression that they have fewer free speech rights now than they used to. When the reality is they have more. That The law more clearly protects religious freedom and free, exor- uh, free exercise of religion and free speech now than it did 30 years ago. But there is a lot of, there are a lot of instruments of cultural pressure like social media and mm-hmm. sort of this prevalence of cancel culture that makes a lot of people afraid to speak. How much would you chalk that up to kind of
1: what people are experiencing via social media and what you might call sort of the media entertainment complex that kind of thrives on fear and scandal and I mean, these are things you've talked about in other places. Mm-hmm. That seems to be a significant factor in raising the... yeah sense of grievance
2: well you know one of the things so a lot when i'm saying that some things haven't changed the, the things that haven't changed are individual eff- uh, efforts to censor christians or to censor christian speech that is something that i'd been filing lawsuits over for 20 plus years what has changed is the ab- ability to instantly nationalize hmm. any given controversy after the Tufts Christian Fellowship case, which was really, really, really egregious because one of the one of the justifications for tossing the Christian student group from campus was the idea that uh, Christian teaching about sin could cause students to commit suicide. Mm. And so they were literally like raising the specter of suicide to throw a Christian student group off campus, which is really egregious. And, and nowadays you, that would trend on Twitter and— Mm-hmm. And now, and every in everybody on the right, it would be on, you know, Fox, Primetime, et cetera, et cetera. And there would be the can you believe it? Look at what the left is like. Well, yeah, that case got some pretty decent media attention uh in legacy media, uh, but not really that aspect of it so much. Um and even though we would file speech code case after speech code case and they would have unbelievable facts, I mean, unbelievable facts sometimes you would have a hard time getting media coverage. If there was a story, the ability to sort of share it and make it nationally prominent was extremely limited. Mm -hmm. And so um, we kind of labored in, in not the, not the shadows, uh, but in relative obscurity Mm -hmm. over cases and issues that were extremely consequential for year after year after year after year. And then with the rise of the conservative entertainment slash media complex and social media, all of a sudden, a lot of these issues really explode into the conservative consciousness in a way that they hadn't for a decade. So there there are two things going on at once. One is, yeah, these cases are real. These things do happen. But at the same time, they are amplified and magnified by the current media social media complex in such a way that they often deceive people into believing that problems that in some ways are getting better, where the worst of it is over, mm-hmm. are in fact getting worse. Um, you know, so if you ask the average conservative, is religious liberty in more in danger now than it was 20, uh, 10 years ago? They would say, yeah. But the reality is there is a f- 15 case winning streak at the Supreme Court right now in religious liberty cases, and most of those cases have been decided by super majorities. So mm. the actual law of religious liberty is more is stronger now than it was 10 years ago. It's certainly stronger than it was 20 years ago. It's vastly stronger than it was 30 years ago. Mm. Um, but we are much more aware, of the threats that do exist to religious liberty than we were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, or 30 years ago.
0: This episode is brought to you in part by Asbury Theological Seminary, a multi-denominational evangelical seminary rooted in the Wesleyan tradition. Serving nearly 100 different denominations, Asbury Seminary prepares theologically educated, sanctified, spirit-filled men and women to evangelize and spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. Asbury Seminary is a spiritually vibrant, academically rigorous community with a residential campus in central Kentucky, extension sites in Orlando, Tampa, Memphis, Tulsa, and Colorado Springs, and fully online programs. With over 1,800 students from 50 countries, Asbury Seminary is committed to embracing a church that encompasses all people, languages, and ethnicities. Learn more at asbury.to slash get started. This episode is brought to you in part by Asbury Theological Seminary, a multi denominational evangelical seminary rooted in the Wesleyan tradition. Serving nearly 100 different denominations, Asbury Seminary prepares theologically educated, sanctified, spirit-filled men and women to evangelize and spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. Asbury Seminary is a spiritually vibrant, academically rigorous community with a residential campus in central Kentucky, extension sites in Orlando, Tampa, Memphis, Tulsa, and Colorado Springs, and fully online programs. With over 1,800 students from 50 countries, Asbury Seminary is committed to embracing a church that encompasses all people, languages, and ethnicities. Learn more at asbury.to slash get started. By 2005, David was
1: the president of an organization called Freedom for Individual Rights in Education, regularly litigating religious liberty and free speech cases across the country. At the same time, the Iraq war was ongoing and frankly wasn't proceeding well.
2: At that point, I was 36. I said to my wife, America is too weak to fight a long war. And at that moment, I felt like this just giant wave of conviction because here I was, relatively healthy, um, living a great life in the US, uh, running a nonprofit, um, you know, doing work that was meaningful and good. But what am I how who am I to judge? people, you know, like people who are not signing up. And then I read another article that talked about how a Marine, I believe it was a Marine major was wounded in the Anbar province. And he called his wife and two kids using a reporter's satellite phone to tell them he'd been wounded, but he was going to be okay. And I remember being, being double convicted because he didn't love his wife and kids, you know, less than I do. I mean, but he was over there and risked putting his life on the line and, and, remember looking at my wife and, and she knew what I was thinking and she wasn't initially very receptive. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but later on she, you know, I, I said, you know, just, just pray about this. And, and she had an epiphany, um, about, you know, that I should do this while she was, we lived in Philadelphia at the time while she was walking with my young son through Independence Hall area. And, and, um, you know, my son was talking to her about what patriotism was. And so I remember coming home and she's waiting for me, coming home from the office and she's waiting for me and she's emotional. And she said, I think you should do this. And I said, well, if I do it, I'm gonna go to Iraq. And she said, you should do it. So I walked, I took my overweight balding self down to the recruiting station in uh, Philadelphia and said, my name is David French. Uh, I need an age waiver and I want to join the JAG Corps. You know, I'm a lawyer, wanted to join the, you know, be an Army lawyer. And they really didn't know what to do with me uh, other than to tell me how to get an Army physical, which, believe me, I barely passed. (laughs) Uh, And then had to get in shape to go to Officer Basic, which, uh, to tell you how bad a shape I was in, uh, the first day I ran, I tried to run a mile and a half. I pulled a hamstring the first day and so but i got myself in shape i i submitted my application packet i believe in november or, uh, late november of 05 was accepted in april of 06 i finished officer basic april of 06 finished officer basic in may of 07 finished my legal training in april of 07 and i left my house uh, to go to iraq to deploy on october 31st 07 but i had to go to fort benning where i did some last minute training so i I didn't fly out to Kuwait until early November, and I didn't get to my base in Iraq until November 22nd, 07. How long were you there? So I was in Iraq from November 22nd, 2007 until uh, late September
1: 2008.
2: <laughs> so this is the height of the surge. And my unit, Third Armored Cavalry Regiment, was deployed to Eastern Diyala Province, which was at that point a hotbed of jihadist activity. This was the we so we ended up fighting the precursor to ISIS. Um, They had already begun to change their name away from Al Qaeda in Iraq, although we tended to still call them Al Qaeda in Iraq. But in my area of operations, they called themselves the Islamic Caliphate of Iraq. Mm -hmm. and they uh, tried to set up a capital in Bakuba, which was not far from us. Um, But just to tell you how bad it was, uh, in November when we flew, when we arrived at our base, we had to fly in because there was such enemy activity on the roads that we were concerned we'd take unacceptable losses if we uh, rode in. And then uh, literally spent from late November, Onward, fighting our way out of where we flew into so that we slowly and steadily controlled more and more and more territory. Um, it was a tough deployment. I mean, we lost a lot of guys. Uh, we lost a lot of guys, including good friends of mine. And it was, it was the hardest year, almost year of my life by orders of magnitude. Um, but I, am, I'm, I don't regret one second of it not one second of it. I remember when we landed like early, early in the morning of November 22nd, one of the troop commanders, uh, he could see, I don't have much of a poker face. So he could see when we landed that I was uh, a little bit alarmed <laughs> when we finished our helicopter flight. And he put his arm around me and he goes, lawyer, that's what they called me before they uh, warmed up to me. Cause I was the only reservist in an active duty unit. Um, <laughs> he said, lawyer, if you live through this, this is the most important year of your life. And uh, all I ever heard him say, all I heard him say in the moment was, if you live through this, <laughs> um, but the latter half of the sentence was absolutely true. Most important year of my life. I remember when I first came back from Iraq, uh, people would ask me, well, what'd you, what'd you learn? And I, I kind of developed a shorthand answer to that which was the enemy is more evil than you can imagine Mm -hmm. uh this isis precursor that we are facing just the most vicious and vile um i could tell you stories of atrocities that would just stories of atrocities that you just could scarcely believe um but also that a deployment is harder than you can also it's also harder than you can imagine Mm -hmm. and so You know, it it creates this sort of paradox that the enemy, uh, the enemy we were fighting is vicious and vile beyond what we typically think. And the cost of war is higher than what you imagine it is, that there's just a giant, giant difference between thinking about what war is and experiencing what war is. Mm. And those two truths exist side by side you know, in the face of that, a lot of people find
1: their faith challenged in various ways. Like what, what, what was that like for you?
2: I think, you know, I mean, it's understanding and developing, um, not just sort of a theology of suffering. That's kind of a a trite phrase, but, um, a spiritual experience of suffering, um, is that, that is something that I think that At some point in our lives, we're going to go through that. We're going to experience a, we all are. We're just all going to experience a period of real suffering and adversity. And you can think you're prepared for it. And you can think that you're a mature enough person to deal with it. And you can think, and you can imagine the way you're going to deal with it. But then it all actually occurs. And I'd never been around that much death before in my life. Hmm. I'd never been in a circumstance where life was that ephemeral. Um, where when you got in, you know, in theory, like if you get in your car and you go to Kroger, like in theory, anything can happen. But Mm -hmm. the one thing you know for sure is, or at least you hope, is that on that ride to Kroger, nobody is actually trying to kill you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Nobody's making plans to kill you. And nobody killed any of your friends a week ago on that same ride, you know, and so, as casualties began to mount, and I'm not going to say I was outside the wire nearly as much as the guys who were in combat arms were, but I was outside the wire enough um, to experience what it feels like to get into a vulnerable Humvee and to get on a road that we strongly suspected was mined with IEDs, and to know that this just—you could be starting the this this ride, you could be li- literally in the last few minutes of your life, and again, I don't—I'm not exaggerating. I don't want to exaggerate or over dramatize my service compared to the armor officers and the cav scouts I served with, who did this every single stinking day, day after day, week after week, month after month. I, I was not outside the wire as much as they were, but my commander very much wanted his JAG officer, who was in in charge, who was a uh, uh, instrumental in a lot of these shoot don't shoot decisions and these um, rules of engagement decisions. He wanted me to know what. It life was like outside the wire. How can I make these decisions intelligently without an, experiencing what life is like outside the wire? So he very intentionally wanted me outside the wire, which is uh, very smart. Uh, very that—that's what you know. A good leader does is he says, "Hey, if you're going to make a decision, you need to know what the environment is like." Mm-hmm. And so, the combination of danger and loss and grief—it uh, really. I, It really took me a while to figure out how to deal with all of that after I got home. Uh, I I think I went through about six months of unbelievable amounts of sleeplessness, um, huge amounts of grief. uh, And it just took a while to absorb it all and and figure out what to, to do with it or how to handle it.
1: Once back from Iraq, David continued his legal work. He also continued writing, something he had been doing since early in his career. The writing began with his religious liberty and pro-life work, in part as a response to some of the obstacles he found in the way of helping the public understand the complexity and nuances of the cases he was handling.
2: And so one of the things I started to do early on in my legal career was find ways to place op-eds and essays about my own cases. So sort of to take the media coverage of my cases into my own hands, (laughs) so to speak.
1: He was a regular contributor at National Review, the conservative publication founded by William F. Buckley. By 2015, he began to consider whether his
2: time as a litigator might be finished. I had filed a lot of lawsuits. I, had, I was thankful for what I'd done. I was thankful for the opportunities I had, but I really just wanted to do something else. And um, I remember calling Rich Lowry at National Review, and I said, Rich, would you be interested in getting any more writing from me than you already have? And he said... I was just thinking I wanted more writing from you. Hmm. And so um, we talked and I jumped ship from full-time practice of law to be uh, a staff writer at National Review and then became a senior writer at National Review. I joined National Review full-time in May 2015. And Trump came down the escalator the very next month. Oh, wow. And I don't think I've had a vacation since.
1: (laughs) I think probably most people who are listening to this podcast, you know, if they're if they're familiar with your work at all, they they know kind of where you stand on the Trump phenomenon. Yeah, I'm in a little. I've subtle. I mean, you have to read between the lines. <laughs> um, I'm curious about the day. So Trump wins the nomination. Mm-hmm. Uh, at some point in the mix of all of this stuff, somebody comes to you and says, "What would you think about running for president?" <laughs>
2: This was before the convention, so we're talking May of 2016, um, and so it's before the convention. I've been very publicly never Trump in my stance, really starting in either in late February, or early March. Um, for a while, I, I was sort of watching Trump skeptically, um, but willing to give him the benefit of the doubt, and and it just he just left me no grounds to give him the benefit of the doubt, and so I very publicly said I was never Trump. So then. Um, a number of us were hoping that there would be a, a viable challenger to, um, to you know, a viable third-party challenge. And so, you know, Mitt Romney announced that he wouldn't do it. Other people were approached. I remember, you know, people would speculate about Ben Sass, but Ben Sass wasn't going to do it. There were speculations about a number of very prominent names, and none of them were willing to do it. And so I, I remember I had dinner with Bill Kristol in May, and Bill was saying, you know, look, I mean, I honestly think that rather than just sort of going down the roster of senators and congressmen, because this is a very anti-establishment moment, that it would be far more effective if we could bring somebody sort of out of the American heartland with um, military, post 9-11 military experience, maybe previously unknown, but um, but somebody who's truly an outsider, even more of an outsider than Trump. And I remember, um, agreeing with Bill about that as a concept, <laughs> not as uh, a description of, of me. Then the next morning, he published an article in the Weekly Standard that floated that very idea, and I believe it says, such as my friend David French. Hmm. It's like, oh boy. Um, And then in later conversations, um, you know, it emerged that he was quite serious about this, that, you know, hey, I think you could do this and I think you could make an impact. And I was really desperate for there to be an alternative to Trump and Hillary. Um, I wanted someone to step forward. Nobody was stepping forward. And so I did actually, and it sounds crazy, give it real serious thought as to whether this is something I would do. And I, I, thought long and hard about it. Well, not long and hard because I couldn't think long cause time, the clock was ticking, but I thought hard about it. It was, I believe cause this all occurred over Memorial day weekend is when a bill tweeted out that there would be a candidate and he would be impressive. <laughs> <laughs> um, but nobody knew who this person, this, this person was. And I'm sitting there going, oh, gosh. Um, And and then I immediately get on the phone with all kinds of people in the conservative movement. And and I'll never forget one phone conversation, which was very brutally direct. and, and, And I appreciated the brutal, direct honesty. They said, when your name leaks, and it will, it will be seen as a failure of the Never Trump movement that they have turned to you. No insult to you, but you will be a symbol of the failure of the Never Trump movement. Because they didn't get, you know, the big, big name. And sure enough, my name leaked, um, you know, about three days later. And, you know, there's this flurry of who is David French? <laughs> like, who is the who is this guy? And um, which led to some kind of funny moments, like, as people are trying to figure out, like, what on earth? Uh, you know, I think at the time I had maybe 20,000 Twitter followers. I mean, like maybe. I remember there was a a thing on Twitter about how can he run for president? He doesn't even have a Wikipedia entry. Um, You know, all kinds of things like that. And so, yeah, there's about 48 to 72 hours of like this who is David French stuff. And during that time, Paul Ryan endorsed, who was, you know, Speaker of the House. He endorsed Trump. It just became very apparent to me that even getting not just on the ballot, but even in people's minds was going to be such a heavy lift that the maximum impact I could play, in my view, you know, and others disagreed with me, but in my view, the maximum impact I could have would be a spoiler at the margins. You know, like the Ralph Nader role in Florida in 2000 or something like that. And I just didn't want to do that. I did not think that that was the right thing to do. And so I decided not to do it. Uh, any regrets? Um, 999 days out of 1,000, no regrets. Okay. <laughs> That's an honest answer. I think most people would just say no. There's, there's, the, day.
1: there's the day. In the years since the election, David continued his work at National Review right up until 2019 when he joined the staff at the Dispatch, a center right conservative news and opinion outlet founded by Jonah Goldberg and Steve Hayes. Along the way, he's continued his advocacy for both classical liberalism and a pluralistic society. The pressures of our culture from both left and right have sought to narrow what fits in the bounds of acceptability. David has consistently been a voice to say, on behalf of those he disagrees with and agrees with, that we need a society that is open and welcoming to people who widely vary on their definitions of the good life. This put him at the center of a bit of a controversy amongst conservatives last year, when Rab Amari, the op-ed editor of the New York Post, began speaking out against what he called Frenchism, the very vision that David advocates. It began when Amari saw an advertisement for something called Drag Queen Story Hour at a library in Sacramento, California. Amari, for his part, is part of a movement you might call neo-Catholic integralism an anti-pluralist vision that would shape society around a distinctly Christian vision of morality. This, of course, is itself an illiberal vision, something distinctly post-Trumpian, and a renewed zeal for culture war, which David often pointed out in the midst of these debates.
2: There's this phenomenon called, and I didn't invent the term, but it's brilliant. It's just brilliant. Kevin Drum, I believe, invented this term, or one of his commenters, I think, actually, back in the early 2000s at the height of the blogosphere Mm-hmm. And it's called nut picking, and mm-hmm. what nut picking is is when you take an event or a person or a comment that is extreme, way outside of the mainstream, and you try to argue that it's emblematic of what they, the other side, really are like. This hmm. is what they want, and so Drag Queen Story Hour is a perfect example of this. I remember. I remember. I debated Soreb in which in that debate focused way too much on drag queen story hour, but he was pointing out that there's 35 chapters of drag queen story hour in the US. And you know, that works out to, uh, you know, one of out of every, about like 8 million Americans. <laughs> um, and, and so 35 chapters in a nation of 320 million people. And we're talking about this, like it's a material issue in people's lives. But that's right. what nut picking does. It allows you to take something that is extreme or unusual and say, this is what they're like. How would you think
1: to counsel Christians to to walk through some of this stuff in, in the weeks, months, years ahead?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I think if I had to, to boil it all down is I think that our American church is too captured by fear. Uh, it's too captured by fear of... Uh, negative cultural developments is very much captured by fear of negative political developments. And that fear has in many ways overwhelmed um, multiple aspects, not just of our professed prior political points of view. Uh, it's also overwhelmed good sense and good theology. And And the bottom line is God did not give us a spirit of fear. And the bottom line is that God Uh, that God is sovereign over the nations. And that a lot of the statements about morality and character and politics that Christians wrote in the 1990s, which turned out to be unfortunately partisan when the tables were turned, expressed some real deep truths about the power and the importance of character and the importance of a moral witness of the Christian church. Let me put it this way. What was it that that, uh, C.S. Lewis said that courage is the form of every virtue at its testing point? A lot of statements about character were easy to make when they were not tested. And then when they were tested, and then when, they, when there, became, there came to be a real cost, partisan cost to upholding previous uh, stances about character, we refused to pay that cost. Hmm. And not only is that wrong, not only is that hypocritical, it's all terrible moral witness to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And this moral witness matters. This The political witness of the church matters, especially when you're talking about a culture where there's a lot of declining levels of faith. And a lot of people are filling that sort of eternity sized hole in the heart with politics. That mm-hmm. politics is becoming an increasingly important aspect of people's lives. And so for an awful lot of people, they are interacting with the church of Jesus Christ primarily through a political lens. And so to then Mm -hmm. say to somebody, yeah, I'm absolutely going to the mat to support um, a guy who is a serial liar uh, in many ways grotesquely incompetent, who has said many, many racist things, who has uh, multiple corroborated allegations of sexual uh, predation against him, uh, paid hush money to a porn star, tried to get a foreign rival to invest a, for, uh, a foreign nation to investigate a political rival. You go through the list and you say, "Yeah, I'm I'm willing to do that because of, of religious liberty and abortion." People do not look at that and say, "Oh, what a faith-filled individual <laughs> who trusts in God." That is not the message that sends. What the message that sends is that person despises me so much that he is willing to inflict upon this country Donald Trump Donald Trump he despises me so much he's willing to inflict upon this country Donald Trump to fight me to fight me hmm. and i think that is a terrible witness and it's so contrary it is so contrary to the to the words and spirit of scripture i mean you know, we're to bless those who persecute us. We're to love our enemies. And instead, we've almost taken a position that says, well, I don't hate my enemies, but I will hire someone to hate them for me. Mm-hmm. And I will actually look at their acts of hatred and looked at their acts of divisiveness and, and look at their acts of retribution as a credit in his ledger because he's doing it on my behalf. Mm -hmm. And that is not a Christian political witness. Yeah, the thought
1: that keeps emerging to me is that, you know, on on the one hand, it seems like evangelicals are quick to use the word or to use the concept of martyrdom in terms of how, you know, how repressed we feel, you know, at at various moments. Um, But they're not willing to die,
2: (laughs) right? Right. We're not willing to lose. We're not willing to be tweeted at. I right. mean, let, let's just be clear about this. This is, in many ways, what you have is a culture of fear, this sort of culture of fear about social media and other things. And the church that was built through apostles who endured beatings is now, in many ways, reduced to disciples who won't endure tweetings. <laughs> um, and and that's, I, it's, I, that sounds awful, but that's honestly right. where we are right now. Not everybody, I mean, there's, you know, look, I, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, um, uh, but it's, it, we are in a position where the the posture of the American evangelical church towards the culture is one of fundamentally one of fear. It seems like a lot of these themes are present in the new book. Um, why don't we take a moment, uh, tell us what your new book is about. I have grown increasingly concerned uh, the more I look at all of these cultural trends that there is no material political, cultural, religious, or social force that is pulling the United States of America together more than it's pushing us apart. Um, That even though policy differences between left and right are not nearly as wide as, as, you know, Twitter would make you believe, there is existing an increasing amount of divisiveness and enmity and negative polarization. Um, Americans left and right dislike each other more and more and more and fear each other more and more and more. And so what my book, it's called Divided We Fall, says very something very simple. We cannot assume that a nation that is dominated by hatred and fear of the other will remain united. And so it has three basic parts to it. Part one shows why we're in the grips of social forces that right now are magnifying hatred and fear. Um, part number two talks about how that could build to a breaking point where we actually do split apart and then part number three is what can we do about it? Um, how, why we must embrace pluralism rather than uh, embrace dominance as a political and cultural strategy that it sort of centered around, centers around two verses from, from Micah, one of which was one of George Washington's favorites that he wrote almost 50 times and, and uh, was repeated and repopularized in the musical Hamilton, that um, every man shall sit under his own vine and fig tree and no one shall make him afraid which is a, uh, a promise that, that Washington was trying to make about the United States, that you can have a home here. And then another one is uh, Micah six eight. what does the Lord require of you? To seek justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with the Lord your God. And that, as, that is a method of political engagement. So you have the object of engagement is that Americans of all stripes can have a home here uh, and a method of engagement by seeking justice mercifully and with humility. And that's the, uh, the fundamental core message of the book.
1: Well, good luck with it. I hope uh, I hope the message gets through. <laughs> it's a word we need to hear for sure in a time like
2: this. So thank you for making time for this. I appreciate it. I really appreciate you having me. It's uh, I've had a great great time chatting.
0: First he sings and then he goes and what it means It's hard to know.
1: Thanks for listening. Please do take a moment and subscribe and maybe think about leaving us a rating and a review wherever you're listening. Cultivated is a production of Christianity Today. This episode was produced and edited by me. It was mixed by Mark Owens. Our theme song is by Roman Candle. Our music is by Dan Phelps, with additional music by Roman Candle. Come back next week when I'll be sitting down with someone I've wanted to talk to for several years now. Beth Moore.
0: The only time I've ever been on staff at a church was as the aerobics teacher at my Christian Life Center at a large uh, Southern Baptist church in Houston, Texas, throughout my, my 20s and, and up to my mid-30s. So that, that was it.
1: See you soon.